0: Hi, everyone. This is Giulia Coraggio, Location Head of the Italian Intellectual Property and Technology Department at DLA Fiber. Uh, this is the podcast Diritto Digitale, and uh, today uh, we have um, uh, a special guest, Datsa Greenwood. Datsa Greenwood is a founder and CEO of civics.com, but is known as one of the most um, active uh, legal tech consultants, specifically with reference to artificial intelligence. And indeed, I invited um, Daza uh, to know a bit more about uh, his view on the impact of AI within uh, the legal consultancy uh, sphere. First of all, Daza, thank you for accepting my invite.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be on this podcast with you. And of course, I've been following your very active work in the area on LinkedIn and elsewhere as well. So it's great to finally be connected with you.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's that. We are touching base with um, different um, legal experts in the industry, and there are those that say, okay, our practice is not going to change much over the years because uh, we are so smart that machine will never uh, catch up. And those that acknowledge that something is going to change and um, it's going to the change is going to be fast. Someone is um, uh, making a parallel between the growth of generative AI with uh, the advent of the iPhone that um, changed all the mobile phone industry. What do you think is going to be the impact of AI, in particular generative AI, on the legal industry? Are we going to continue doing our legal practice as we have been doing during the last 20 years, or we need to change and
1: do it fast? You know, I, I think the change is, well, there's two things that are going to happen. The first is quick change, mm-hmm. which is already happening in, in in law offices and in-house counsel, regulators and legislators alike across the world um, as they uh, kind of adopt and apply this new technology to, Almost every task that, that we're doing that involves drafting, analyzing, summarizing um, uh, matters. The, the second thing is going to be an even bigger change. Um, and that'll take, I think, a little while longer for the rest, for the overall the economy and society to catch up to this new capability. Right? that's going to, I, many people expect that there's going to be more profound and deeper changes in the nature of work itself, the nature of enterprises types of lines of business and products and services. You mentioned the iPhone. That, that's a device that has a market share that you could say is, you know, you, arguably it was the same kind of device when the first day it came out as a as a dumb phone and it and it competed head to head. That was not the major impact. There's a whole constellation of applications and services and ways of working, ways of interacting, ways of connecting. It, it really created a whole new type of economy, you could say, and society, arguably as well. So too, um, this technology will we'll see the same thing, and that's going to impact law more than most other places. Partly because law is a language-intensive um, field, and so you know this technology is more applicable to law than perhaps. Or no, there's no other place in the on the planet that this technology is going to impact more than law. I believe.
0: Do you think that uh, then uh, uh, technology suppliers are going to jump into the field of legal advice or it's more going to be that uh, law firms are going to partner with uh, technology suppliers uh, or I don't know, it's the adoption. How are we going to see that the legal market is going to change? Yeah, on the one hand, uh, we are going to have technology suppliers that uh, are going to become providers of legal services. And on the other hand, maybe we're going to have law firms that are going to partner with the technology suppliers or are going to become themselves uh, providers of technology uh, to avoid losing market
1: share. Okay, I see what you mean now. Um well you know of course it's hard to predict the future uh, but based on initial trends it looks like we'll see both of the things that you just said and we're already seeing early indicators of both of those um activities um people are using this technology and small businesses are using this technology directly from the providers to start to do legal research and you know what it's it <clears throat> has not been empirically studied very, in a very rigorous way yet, but early um, anecdotal, lots of anecdotal evidence suggests that many people are better off now using this technology than they were Googling or asking their friends what the law was of all the people that don't already have in-house legal counsel and and, and big fancy contracts with lawyers. And so it's not perfect, but it's, we're already seeing some some impact there, and that's going to take shape uh, and and there'll be safeguards and protections, and that'll be part of the picture. I think it, the the second thing you said about law firms changing in a sense the way that they provide legal services so that it's more encapsulated as part of a technology offering. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that that's we're also. I mean, we've already been seeing that for a while in different places in, in supply chains and in certain complex transactions where the law firm gets almost embedded in the business and technology systems of yeah. their clients yeah. and helps to do configurations and many other types of things. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and and in, in a sense, that becomes the way that law is provided and, and le- legal advice becomes encoded in a sense in these systems. I think there's going to be a lot more interesting ways that lawyers can provide applications and services that integrate with other kind of workflows um, in the future that's driven by these LLMs, but also have the human oversight and control and accountability that a a licensed lawyer can provide. So I do think we'll start to see that. I haven't yet exactly seen it, but uh, now that you mention it, uh, I guess I have heard of some Sort of grad students at MIT and at some hackathons out here in the Bay Area where I am in San Francisco that are doing projects that kind of are examples of the second thing that you're saying, a kind of a, an app and service offering of, of a law office that are driven in, almost entirely by large language models and generative AI. Uh, my sense is probably the biggest changes will be things that we can't predict or foresee today in this podcast. It'll be second and third order changes but um, nonetheless, we should we should try to look over the horizon as best we can and adapt our navigation.
0: No, no, I, absolutely. I, I do believe that um, the only way for law firms to survive is to partner with the uh, technology suppliers on the one end and on the other end to uh, understand technology, uh, build technology uh, within their legal offering. Uh, because as you mentioned before, Generative AI allows some, um, Uh, to simplify the provision of legal services. So if we don't provide clients with um, an enhanced service, uh, clients are going to move away from law firms. And a law firm cannot expect it to just uh, rocket science work. Uh, That would be uh, ideal, but it's not um, uh, realistic. Uh, Now, um, on... uh, Uh, The world around uh, artificial intelligence is divided between those that are very pro-AI and those that raise concerns. How do you think that um, the legal industry needs to tackle artificial intelligence and embed artificial intelligence in their offering if there are some potential uh, ethical or um, um, other type of uh, legal concerns?
1: yeah indeed and and so th- this is a critical question right now i think among practicing attorneys who are already using this technology as part of their everyday um you know work um in practicing law there are not a lot of um mature policies and uh and guidelines and procedures uh governing the use of generative ai in law firms and in in legal departments of in-house counsel um there are there's some initial guidance that's come out um but there's a bit of a scramble right now with people with um like managing partners and i.t directors and the other kind of people involved in in managing the use of technology for law practice uh trying to develop and share with each other um what those policies and guidelines should be Um, to to try to get ahead of this and to at least be constructive and share back the best ideas that we're hearing. Um, The law.mit.edu research unit that you mentioned at the top of the show that I I run has um, launched a task force. Um, And it is the task force on responsible use of generative AI for law and legal processes. And um, we'll be publishing an initial draft of principles and guidelines with some commentary on what what we think uh, sh- lawyers should keep in mind when they're when they're using this. But just at a, at a very high level, some some of the key themes are number one, um, client consent to because this is a new technology and having disclosure of of what we're doing. Uh, as fiduciaries after all for for our clients is, is critical and not just disclosure but also their their understanding and their consent um an, another big one that has to do with almost a kind of like a continuing legal education related to the competent use of the technology and and i think that um the concern here is the the quality of what you get out is heavily dependent on the prompt that you compose and so um you know, understanding um, prompt engineering and is is gonna be critical and having certain kind of um, quality assurance for that uh, is gonna be critical. With all computer systems, garbage in, garbage out, they say, um, this is particularly sensitive, this technology to even small nuances in what's in the prompt. And so you can find out more about legal prompt engineering, which is a bit of a domain specific type of prompt engineering at, at civics.com and law.mit.edu. Um, there's also issues of the, you know, sometimes the outputs are not factually accurate and some people say it lies or it uh, hallucinates um I don't think using those kinds of anthropomorphic terms making it sound like a human is quite accurate but but you, there, there's but you have to understand that um, there may be it, it could sort of fabricate um facts or confabulate you know narratives and that that really requires the lawyer to, to be Keep a careful eye on the output, and to make sure it's it's truthful, it's accurate. The citations are are accurate. The, the legal reasoning is good. Um, confidentiality comes up. So for the service provider, almost everyone's using an ex an external service provider um, for for these services. You have to be careful of leaking confidential client information or other proprietary or sensitive data. Um, and you know this is. Companies are all are, are already starting to deal with this um, that provide um, generative AI with enterprise um, kind of offerings and and, way, and, and, uh, and ways to deal with confidential information. That's still a concern. And I'll just leave. I'll end with this last one that that is near and dear to my heart. Um, and it has to do with a subtle fiduciary duty. It's the fiduciary duty of loyalty. So with yeah. this one. Um, you know, as, as as attorneys, we need to put our clients' interests first, um, mm-hmm. above our own or above some other party's interests or whatever. Um, and whenever you you use these generative AIs to generate whether drafts or analysis or whatever you're doing, whatever you get isn't free of some kind of interest or bias. Everything in language has some implied bias, sometimes explicit yeah. bias in favor of this or that. What I think the trick for lawyers, and we're still getting our heads around this and coming up with exercises and issue spotting and skill building, but basically to have a critical eye to ask yourself in the output, whose interest does this Serve? Is it maybe stilted toward the buyer or the seller or a big company or a small company or this or that? And then to ask yourself, is this, are these, does this reflect the priorities and the interests and what I'm optimizing for for my client? And if it does, great. If it doesn't, then change it um, because that's another like filter we need to apply as attorneys in using this technology. Best way to do it, by the way, is go back and change your prompt and use legal prompt engineering to express what the interests and priorities of your client are. Um, You don't even have to say the name of the client to do that, and then you'll get much better outputs. Anyway, here's just the tip of the iceberg of of the types of due diligence and prudent use of the technology that attorneys should keep in mind. And you can learn a lot more about that at law.mit.edu forward slash AI when our guidelines and principles come out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Actually, I I agree with you. We, We see uh clients that uh, are embarking into the AI world without considering uh the legal implications of the exploitation of um this kind of technologies and indeed at l a paper on the one end we are providing consultancy services on the other end we are embedding AI in our legal services and uh, also supporting clients in using AI in their uh, operations uh, in the offering of services to their clients, because AI is going to expedite all the operations. So even, at the, for instance, the in-house council and their in-house team will not work anymore as used to do, but uh, they need to do this shift uh, uh, with the proper uh, safeguards. Otherwise, uh, it's uh, just um, uh, creating an additional risk uh, rather than um, simplifying operations. Kata, the last question, Uh, we're seeing um, draft regulations on AI popping up all around the world, in the US, in Europe, in China, Um, and um, we noticed that sometimes uh, they are over conservative, especially the European Union traditionally has been always been has always been very conservative in regulations. Where do you think the right balance between protecting individuals and um, um, rights owners, right, right owners, and on one hand exploiting AI is placed? where how the regulations should be drafted in this situation where basically we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow because uh, maybe 6 months ago people were not talking about uh, llm and now it's the main topic
1: uh, of discussion every day i take your point that uh that continental europe has um yet again um tended toward a more regulatory and prescriptive Approach to uh, the use of technology um, in you know, in that in those jurisdictions, um, and the you know the early drafts of the AI Act and a bunch of other uh, reactions, I guess I would say, um, not least of which, in your own country of Italy, um, are harbingers of, of this tendency. Um, yeah. This is not the only way to approach regulation. Um, the, Two critical things to keep in mind in looking across the board of options. One of them is, you know, we have already a lot of existing law that applies perfectly well to the use of this technology or that technology. Just yesterday, the uh, uh, several United States agencies, the Department of Justice, um uh, ftc and other regulatory agencies um put out a joint statement uh, which you, I, I posted about on linkedin uh reminding everybody that they have existing regulatory statutory and regulatory authority to enforce laws yeah. against discrimination and bias and other automated decision um um issues that that could that can arise um and and they don't require a, an AI specific act to do that. This is a somewhat of a common law approach to looking at laws and applying them to new facts and circumstances. So uh but but we do have that in the US and and that's one thing to keep in mind in every country we have existing laws that can be applied to this technology. It uh the, the other thing is there's other ways to regulate the technology. I'm a big fan of the United Kingdom's approach which is a very pro innovation approach that also is I think, very clear headed about risks and harms that could happen to um, individuals and and others as a result of the misuse or uh, accidental outcomes from this technology. Uh, But overall is is creating a structure that allows experimentation and keeps a careful, watchful eye Um, So that so that regulation can be formed to respond to demonstrable market failures and demonstrable harms, not to try to guess what might happen next and risk freezing the market or or getting it wrong in various ways. And so I think they've got a very enlightened approach, something that no few people are talking about that we probably should talk about now is identity. It's going to be it's already becoming hard to know when the source of a message was a human versus uh, a generative AI. And I think that's something that's, we didn't really adjust for that in, in our old, like we have identity theft and some other things, but they're addressing other problems. Um, I think we do need to get, go get, go be faster at identifying what's likely to happen as a result of deep fakes and, and just um f- sort of astroturfing at you know, broad scale, the mark all of our information channels with information that might be coming from, A giant bot army that's maybe been weaponized against us or is from a a fraud army or who knows what. So I think this is going to be something that is a little bit new and there's some other new things. But I I would suggest a balanced approach that doesn't kill um, the enormous benefits. So to balance has to be proportional to the benefits. Let's not lose the benefits. People should have access to this technology and we should keep a watchful eye and respond with with regulation to demonstrable failures as opposed to try to pre-guess what might happen tomorrow. No, 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 absolutely.
0: Gata, it was a very interesting chat and uh, I thank you for your time and uh, uh, I'm sure we're going to talk much in the future because... uh, The world of Generative AI is just at the very beginning, so we will exchange views in the coming months.